I'm Tim Beatley. I uh, teach in the Urban and Environmental Planning Department in the School of Architecture. And I'm the co-director with Reuben Rainey of this still new Center for Design and Health. And so I'm going to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about this uh, relationship between uh, built environments, uh, cities in particular, and, and health, because I'm an urban planner uh, by training. I'm not an architect. So I tend to think about things uh, outside the buildings and, and that kind of neighborhood, city, and even regional uh, scale. So I'll give you just a little uh, introduction to some of the things that we're thinking about in the center, some of the faculty that are involved in the center, and then focus in and talk a little bit about one uh, research project that we have going on that has to do with nature uh, in cities, the role, the role of nature. So uh, pretty obvious, I think, to a lot of you that there has been this uh, building evidence about the relationship between the built, the design and planning of the built environment and health. A um, whole series of studies, uh, Moran's study here showing the relationship between sprawl uh, and a whole host of chronic health problems, asthma, hypertension, arthritis, chronic lung, lung disease. We know uh, that background image, we know that our, uh, our recent history post-World War II, especially of spreading out of urban sprawl, of, of growing less densely uh, becoming, it seems, ever more dependent on, on uh, uh, private automobiles, although that is changing now, um, has meant that we've led, we tended to be uh, more sedentary, um, and we have a, a huge, of course, concern about uh, obesity, uh, rising obesity rates, and uh, particularly in children uh, who are not spending as much time outside and not getting as much physical activity as we'd like. So maybe not a big surprise that how we design that physical environment um, impedes or can facilitate um, healthier living and more active um, uh, lifestyles. So many of us in planning are, of course, talking about how can we design more uh, mixed-use environments, more compact, higher-density places where uh, things are within an easy walk uh, and we're concerned about um, sidewalks and, and um, pedestrian, you know, all kinds of things that can make it easier to walk and to get us out of our cars, which is, of course, a, a huge uh, challenge for us. We know uh, just being sedentary, this is, these are um, excerpts from a, a recent um, uh, Australian study that sort of summarized everything about what we know about sedentary uh, lifestyles. We're sitting, particularly sitting at desks all day. What does that mean? Uh, well, the conclusion of this study, um, e even if we were able to get 30 minutes of daily exercise, which is what the Centers for Disease Control tell us we should get, that may not be enough uh, to counteract all of the health uh, associated things, impacts of sitting, sitting around all day. Uh, 30 minutes, you sometimes hear 10,000 steps a day is what the Centers for Disease Control. For a while, we were actually um, it, just sort of trying to see how many steps we typically got, you know, in, in the School of Architecture. It sure wasn't 10,000 for the uh, But it's an interesting exercise to go through, uh, to see how, how close you are uh, to that. So we know uh, that that environment, that built environment, can affect uh, our, our daily routine. And this is um, Dick, Dick Jackson, actually. He's a... Um, a professor at UCLA is actually on our, our advisory board for our Center for Design and Health. This is actually his slide. So heaven forbid that we get any exercise on the way to getting exercise, right? So, so the American 
approach is that we have to think about scheduling it, right? So exercise happens from 10.30 to 10.50 or 11.15. And we've got to get in our car, uh, usually, to go to the gym to get the exercise. So we're looking at a lot of cities where that isn't the case, often European cities, where physical act, exercise, physical activity is sort of designed in. So you're not likely to even have to think about it. If you're walking to the store, uh, to shop, if you're riding your bicycle to work, uh, those, that physical activity is integrated into the design of that, uh, that built environment. So um, health and design though is much more, uh, of course, broad than just the physical exercise we're concerned about. A healthy diet. Um, we're in the, in the planning program in the School of Architecture now are teaching classes in community food systems. Food has emerged. Planners have rediscovered food in a big way. So it's physical exercise. It's what we're eating or, or not eating. Um, that's important as well. Access to healthy food. You know, there are huge uh, social inequities uh, there. Uh, how much social interaction are we are we getting in the course of a, a normal day? It turns out that Americans, the evidence is pretty alarming. Americans um, are fairly isolated. When you see how many friendships and how many deep friendships a typical American has, not very many. At the same time, a lot of the evidence is showing that mortality rates, for example, cancer mortality goes down. Uh, where, where patients have a more extensive network of fr friends, friends and family, deeper friendships, not a, not a big surprise. Uh, so how do we design um, cities and neighborhoods and, that foster um, those, those, those social interactions that make us, help to make us healthy uh, as well? So these are some pretty meaty um, questions for us, and there's Sophie. <laughs> So, we, so I wanted to say a, a few words about our new Center for Design and Health. We're about three years old, I think, now, or something like that. And it grows out of uh, a lot of things we were already doing in the school. And actually, our, our dean, Kim, Kim Tanzer, when she arrived, looked around. One of the first things she did was to uh, get us all together to, to, and, and uh, talking about sort of common interests and common research areas. And it turned out that health Health and design, health and planning, actually was a, something that many of us were, were interested in. And then a lot of other people around grounds, of course, are interested in this. And some are in places like psychology, but of course, obviously, the medical school, the nursing school, places like that. So we thought, wouldn't it be great to create a, a, the context for bringing people together to have conversations, to begin to work together, to begin to develop uh, research and proposals, and that's essentially what we did with Kim Panzer's uh, help, and actually Warren's help, in uh, getting the funding, that the initial funding, and the funding that's actually kept the, the center uh, going. So there is, to learn more, um, there is a web page, and I would uh, encourage everybody to take a look. It's, it's www.uvahealthdesign, I'm going to get this wrong, Warren. Health, design, health, design health. I'm, I'm it's right there. Design there it is. <laughs> or just, oh, here it is. Yeah, or just Google health, UVA design and health. And you'll see um, some of the things we're doing. We're co-sponsoring lectures. Um, we're bringing visitors to the school. We're trying to integrate a, a health lens, a health perspective into our studios and, and uh, thinking about the kind of curricular uh, dimensions of this. We're developing joint programs with public health. 
uh, thinking about a certificate in design and health. We haven't, done, haven't been able to do that yet, but that's likely to happen in the next year. Uh, in planning, we have a couple of courses, healthy communities, a couple of classes that focus on, on design and health. And one of the most important things we've done is to create a fellows program. And I'll give just a little bit of money um, and uh, a lot of um, moral support. Uh, <laughs> maybe more important in a sense. Um, but Sophie was our inaugural uh, Design and Health Fellow. We're very excited. So this year, we have uh, a, a co cohort, in fact, three. So we have two uh, professors from the medical school and one professor from the nursing school. So they are the, the new fellows. It's been terrific work. And one of the things that, one of the ideas behind this is that we, we, we're encouraging, we're enticing faculty outside the School of Architecture to come to us, in a sense, and join with us. And so part of the requirement is that you propose a research project, but you also propose to work with somebody in the school. So that's a very interesting uh, model. Um, so here's the mission, and there's a lot, lot more information. We're also supporting you know, small grants, uh, a research grants program uh, for our faculty within the school and a number of other things that we're doing. But we're largely the first two or three years uh, has really been about igniting conversations and bringing people around uh, a table to, to, to work together on this issue. And it is a really meaty issue. So what is a healthy place? All the things we just talked about. A lot of our interest has been at the kind of neighborhood level. There's a fair amount of work and a fair amount of interest in the, in the building design and of course uh, a lot of health facilities and hospitals that are being uh, designed and built today with, a, with clearly uh, a new emphasis on you know, how can that building help to make help to heal people and make them healthier. But a lot of the work uh, really has to has to happen outside that building and has to be about neighborhoods. This is um, a neighborhood actually where we filmed uh, Warren mentioned this this Nature and Cities documentary film and this is a neighborhood in the Netherlands um, it's pretty close. So what does it include? Well, it has an orchard in the middle. It has a community farm for growing lo as local as you can get, organic food, healthy food. It's compact. It's mixed use. People are walking around. There are spaces uh, throughout the neighborhood where kids can play, uh, in fact, and they can walk to the transit station. And, uh, and it's a car uh, moderated car tra traffic calm uh, kind of environment, trying to encourage people actually to think about living without that that car. An integration of health services and and community services in the neighborhood. So uh, we think that the neighborhood represents an especially uh, important scale. So I want to spend the rest of the time uh, that I have sort of building on this and talking about a particular kind of design element in at that neighborhood and city um, scale. And that's the incorporation of nature. Nature, the natural environment. We're sitting in a, a hermetically sealed room, it seems, without any natural daylight or any nature to speak of. Um, but we believe there is tremendous power in connected to, to the natural environment. So we've, uh, we're in the second year of something called the, our, the Biophilic Cities Project. And we've gotten funding uh, from the Summit Foundation, Washington-based uh, foundation, and also, also George Mitchell uh, Foundation, Texas. So what does this mean? Bi biophilia, you, you may know that, that word, that concept. It, it's something that Ed Wilson at Harvard, Neil Wilson, 
didn't didn't coin the term, wasn't the first person to use that term biophilia, but, but the kind of contemporary meaning is really his. This idea that we as human beings are carrying with us our ancient brains, that we have co-evolved uh, with the natural world, and uh, we are, to such a degree that we are happier, healthier, uh, more productive than we have nature around us. And the evidence is pretty compelling. You can't maybe see this definition of biophilia. The innately emotional affiliation of human beings to other living organisms. Innate means hereditary, hence part of ultimate human nature. We are hardwired, the argument says, to need that contact with the natural world. And it's not nature, it's not a nature experience that we get, uh, that we can satisfy just on our holidays during the summer, going a week somewhere. It has to be nature uh, that we experience every day, perhaps every hour. And it has to be in our neighborhoods. It has to be around us uh, all the time. So a few slides um, just to, to uh, talk about the evidence, which is really um, compelling in my mind and growing. Uh, this uh, terrific um, body of work from Japan. They call it forest bathing. I love the, the concept of that, that you'd be walking in a forest and like bathing in water. You're, you're, you're hearing the bird sounds and you're seeing the dappled light and, and uh, immersing yourself in that, that forest. And we know from this evidence, this research, that, that stress hormone levels go down at the end of that walk. That this, uh, that, that forest bathing serves to boost your immune uh, system. That there are, there are uh, physiological and mental um, positive values that, that result from having that, that nature. Back to the social. Uh, my argument has been that, uh, that nature helps to bring us together. It's not the only thing that can, but it seems uniquely suited to helping to form friendships and helping to create uh, the environment, the context in which socialization happens. So these are, are two, two women who are amateur wildlife trackers in Southern California. They actually followed them around. It's a, another story from our documentary film. And they, they can tell you, look at a, a paw print and tell you the finer, the fine differences between what a uh, domestic cat's paw print it looks like compared to the, the resident female bobcat we were actually tracking on that day. So we followed them around and we actually, at a certain point, we couldn't keep up with them, we hardly could. And at one point they went off the trail and went off into the bushes and we were trying to follow them and we, 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 uh, we heard this yelping, this very happy sound and apparently they found blood uh, <laughs> on the branch. And uh, they, you know, we were close, they thought. Maybe a little bit was a recent kill um, by the bobcat. Uh, but these two um, amazing amateur trackers will tell you they've, they've formed a friendship, a very close friendship, um, through this process of learning uh, this, this sort of amateur nature uh, activity. And they will tell you that the canyon, um, where they do most of this and where they're standing, one of these canyons in San Diego that's sort of been jumped over by developments remarkable, uh, the amount of nature in the center of San Diego. They'll tell you that the, the neighborhoods around this canyon are quite quite different. Uh, there's high density housing in one place and single family, low density uh, neighborhoods and people not normally come together. But this canyon creates the environment in which uh, that, in fact, can happen. So a lot of evidence about the power of urban greening uh, in addressing ur urban problems. Um, recent study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology 
showing that in, in, uh, in Philadelphia, um, neighborhoods where vacant lots have been planted with trees show reductions in gun violence. Very interesting. Not perhaps a big surprise. The greener the neighborhood, the more likely you are to be outside, the more likely you are to want to be walking. Um, there are, those are direct effects, but then indirect effects of, of reducing crime. So uh, consistent reductions in gun assaults uh, and in vandalism in this case. Uh, regression adjustment estimates showed that vacant lot greening associated with residents reporting less stress and more exercise. Um, again, um, health impacts from that greening. And a lot of fantastic efforts in that city to do things like tree planting. So there's something called the Philly Orchard Project, where a neighborhood-based um, program where uh, neighborhoods plant orchards and they um, agree to take care of those, those trees. And the trees, the orchard becomes kind of a place for the community, the neighborhood to come together. So, so there's a lot of power in, in this nature. So this Biophilic Cities project has been largely about trying to understand what a biophilic city is or, or could be. So it's obviously the presence of nature. It's, it's that, that nature in, in the urban environment, that biodiversity, the flora, the fauna, uh, the fungi. And, and we know, actually, the evidence is that cities harbor a lot more nature than we sometimes realize. So, Here's a, you can't see this very well, background image from Helsinki, uh, Finland. So one definition of a biophilic city is that you, ha you have access to a network of nature such that you, when you walk out your door, you've got nature there all around you. And then you can walk to progressively larger uh, amounts of nature. So in the case of, of Helsinki, uh, you can walk from the very dense center of town all the way out to old growth forests at the edge, edge of the city. So the presence of nature, we're getting better in urban planning at, at uh, the metrics and at understanding how much nature we have and, and setting targets. It's pretty common now uh, in, in cities, uh, in city plans to say, to establish a target of all, you know, 100% of the population being within a five to 10 minute walk of a park or a green space. Or, minimum tree canopy coverage. Many cities are, are setting that. So become a little better at understanding the extent of the nature. But it's not just the presence or absence of nature. It's uh, how engaged we are with that nature. Um, are we doing things like those, those urban, those amateur urban trackers? How much uh, time are we spending outside? How much do we know about that nature in cities? How much do we actually care about it? Those things are, are just as important. They're a little bit harder understand the metrics. So that's what we're working on. I'm fast running out of time, but uh, one of our key questions in this um, Summit Foundation project is trying to understand how much nature and what kinds of nature urbanites really need to be healthy and happy and to lead meaningful lives. That's a really big uh, question. We have, there is uh, literature and research Sometimes we describe this in, in the terms of the question, what is the minimum daily requirement of nature? Interesting. Uh, we don't even know, you know what the dosages are. We don't even know how, um, you know, what constitutes a dose or a serving, if you will, of nature. So we're trying to kind of pull that apart. And is it, is it uh, when that bird flies in front of you as you're walking 
to your car or walking to the bus? And, uh, is that one serving? Is it two, two birds and a green roof? Is it two birds, a green roof, and four trees? What, what combination of things represents that, 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 that dosage, that, that minimum required nature that you should get? And how often do you need it? Is it, is it every hour, every half hour, uh, every day? So we've been conceptualizing this a little bit in terms of, the, of, of what we're calling the nature pyramid. And my colleague, Tanya Dengler-Kopp, really had this insight. So her idea, we've taken in a little bit different direction and it builds on the, the food pyramid. We all know about the food uh, pyramid as a, as a way of you know, giving some guidance about what, our, what a healthy diet uh, should be. Those things at the top of the pyramid, uh, it's a little irritating now that the USDA is, is going to plates. Um, they're moving away from the pyramid. I like pyramids. So we know, you know, you don't want to die at that top of that, that food pyramid, the things, you know, that may be good for you in small quantity. You want to build your diet with those things at the base, so the, the fruits and vegetables and grains. Um, so what, is the, what are the analogous um, elements for a nature pyramid? We don't want you, you may be able to go uh, off to Costa Rica and immerse yourself in a cloud forest. Um, you may have the income to do that. We can't afford for you to do that. We can't afford the carbon footprint uh, associated with everyone doing that. Moreover, we need to think about what, what that diet will be, where you live, the everyday nature, the nature around you. So, so we've been trying to think about what is it that's at the base of this nature uh, pyramid. It's kind of interesting. This idea seems to be resonating. One of our partner cities is, is Singapore. And Singapore decided they liked the pyramid and they decided they wanted to make their own version of the pyramid. So this is the Singapore version with Singapore butterflies and Singapore. So it's kind of interesting. I get this question all the time. Well, is there one diet uh, or are there nature diets that dependent on region and city? Is it like the Mediterranean diet? You, know, you, you have a different food diet for different, different cities and that's clearly true. Uh, you think about different climates and different bioregions and, and the fact that green root things like green roofs are great, but they don't work so well in Phoenix, uh, for example. So, so this is a big question. I don't have the, a great answer for you, um, but it is true that there are many exciting things that cities are doing around the country and around the world. My last few slides just give you a little flavor for the, some of the ways that cities are designing in, planning in, nature into their dense urban environments. And these are actually examples from our partner cities. So here's another website for you to visit, um, www.biophiliccities.org. Um, we have a Biophilic Cities blog every week. Uh, an e-newsletter e every month is one just about to come out. If you go and add your email, um, we'll send it to you. And that's um, Biophilic Cities, so two Cs, altogether.org. Um, I think I have a final slide that has it on it. But. So we have uh, partner cities from around the U.S., um, Milwaukee, Portland, San Francisco. Uh, we have partner cities around the world, so Oslo, uh, Vittoria Gastez in the Basque Country in Spain, uh, Singapore, Wellington, New Zealand, and they're all coming to our big launch event in October. So October 17th to 20th. If you happen to be around and would like to attend that, um, it will be a terrific um, two, two or three day event. So uh, Luis Arrive heads the environment program for Victoria. So they have been fam become famous for their, their um, 
green ring, this amazing kind of green belt that wraps around the city. But now they want to bring that nature into the center of this very dense um, city. And they're imagining, imagining an what they call an interior green ring. So they've identified places where they want to do things. And the first project is going to be daylighting a stream, a river, that used to run right through the center of town. So it's, it's underground in a pipe, and they're going to bring it back to the surface and bring it back, back to life. So Victoria Gastez, one of our partner cities. Oslo, uh, amazing story here. Two-thirds of the city is in protected forest. And very easy to get to that forest. And the latest chapter is a uh, very bold green plan to, to do the same thing, bring, bring their nine rivers back to the surface, connecting the forest and the fjord in that city. And a pretty remarkable urban trail uh, system as well. And this is an image from one, one of the trails on the left. Uh, you'd never, you wouldn't expect that you're just a few hundred meters away from dense urban, um, urban neighborhoods there. San Francisco uh, doing some pretty amazing things to reimagine small spaces in that city, already very built up a dense city. Well, they started something called the Parklets program. And a parklet is taking uh, a, a two or three on-street parking spaces and converting those to new parks. What an interesting idea. So this is one image. This is the first residential parklet. Um, Jane Martin, who's a landscape architect, designed this, including a vegetative dinosaur, <laughs> which connects to the deeper history of that of that city. Um, and I'll stop here just a minute. Portland, amazing things to incorporate green into the city that does many things. In particular, uh, retains, collects, retains, treats stormwater. So this is our partner, Linda Dobson, who runs the stormwater management program for the city of Portland. And she's standing in the, in the courtyard of a building, of a, of a, of a neighborhood, an um, apartment building called Tenth uh, of Hoyt, where all the water that falls on the building is collected and then sent through a series of runnels and, and um, interior um, little funny little public art elements. And, and the residents come out and listen when it rains. Interesting idea. By the way, biophilia is multi-sensory. So it's as much about what we hear and smell and, um, as it is what we, what we see. Uh, Milwaukee, another partner city that just opened their third um, neighborhood-based ecology center, and they're taking uh, a part of the Menominee River and restoring it as a, a huge uh, a story about rivers and how rivers can enhance quality of life. Uh, one of our partner cities is Phoenix, and um, Phoenix has an amazing uh, story about its uh, desert, urban desert conservation efforts. And this is a, an image from um, Scottsdale, where uh, they have a 17,000-acre uh, urban desert preserve, and we filmed actually Jane, this is Jane Rao, who was one of the founders of this, uh, this preserve. We uh, filmed her last year. She's just turned 90, and she hears the benefit of nature in cities, particularly for older uh, folks. Her doctor loves this. Uh, her bone density has gone up. Her weight's back to what it was in high school. She's healthy. She's getting up at early in the morning. She's made friendships. Uh, and she's a, just an amazing force behind this, uh, this park. So last a couple of images, Singapore, then I'll stop. Singapore is quite a remarkable story. Um, here, what we're interested in, in learning is how can you have nature 
in a very vertical city. So most of the people living in Singapore are living in high-rise buildings. How do you have nature, how do you live a, a, an existence close to nature in that kind of environment? And they've figured it out in many ways. So they've added in the last 15 years a couple of million people to their population, but at the same time, they've actually increased the percentage of green cover in this city. And they've done it in very creative ways. Um, these are images of their parks connector network, which connects major population points with, with parks. And much of it happening at this sort of canopy walk uh, level. Uh, and if you're interested, by the way, our latest film, um, which you can find on YouTube, is called Singapore Biophilic City. If you just Google that, you'll find it. It's about a 45-minute film. Uh, basically telling these different stories uh, from, from, uh, from Singapore. Um, this is one story about an amazing uh, green school. I skipped over this story. Eight-story eight, eight uh, high uh, interior, partially, mostly interior green wall uh, in the commercial district in Singapore. And we have a little uh, uh, a part of the film that talks about this, the most biophilic hospital I've ever seen, um, KTPH. And uh, it's um, remarkable, uh, everything from a, a, a beautiful green interior courtyard that, that many of the windows look down upon um, to uh, growing food uh, actually on the rooftop. Actually 140 fruit, fruit trees on this hospital roof are one, one part of the, of the building. Okay, so this is my last slide. If, you want, if you'd like more information, Warren mentioned this book called Biophilic Cities. It's a thin book, um, <laughs> partly because my publisher says people don't want to read fat books anymore. Mainly it's because we're just beginning to understand this, this subject. And it was a, this book was an effort to try to throw out some ideas and to speculate about uh, what biophilic cities could be or should be. And so it's um, meant to be a little shot across the bow in some ways. Uh, and here's a um, screenshot of the, of the Biophilic Cities uh, webpage. There's a, there's a page for each of our partner cities. Uh, soon there'll be a lot more information about this uh, launch event uh, happening in, in October.